Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Sarah Eisen with Bob Pisani. Today, live from Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange, Carl, Jim, and David have the morning off. Last trading day of the year. Taking a look at futures. Will we get a record close for the S&P? I don't know. It looks like another quiet day. Futures pointing up. Dow futures up 12 points. Dow, by the way, at a record high. NASDAQ 100 also at a record high. NASDAQ composite down one, one point here in the pre-market. It's about 6% away from its own record high, but having a banner year up more than 44% so far. Our roadmap begins with the final trading day of 2023. Best year for stocks since 2019. S&P 500 still on the cusp of a record as the stock melt-up continues. Plus, 12 stocks in the S&P 500 gaining more than 100% on the year. We're going to break down the big winners. And oil prices heading for their first losing year since 2020. WTI crude down more than 20% in the fourth quarter alone. We begin with the markets, though, and there's a lot to say, Bob, about the performance this year, especially in the last month, because we're closing out the month of December and the fourth quarter. It's been a surprisingly eventful and bullish one. I'll just give you one stat. So we're, we're now going to close out our nine week of gains for the S&P and for the Nasdaq, something we haven't seen in unison, according to Bespoke, since 1985. It's almost two different years. There's uh, everything up until the end of October and then there's November. And it's very important not to confuse causes and effects. The cause of what has happened in the last two months is the market has come to believe the Federal Reserve is done with its interest rate hikes and that there will be significant amounts of rate cuts occurring next year. The effect of that has been interest rates have declined dramatically since the end of October. That has caused the stock market overall to rise by particularly a broadening out in the markets that we've talked about so much. We talked yesterday, small cap stocks moving up value stocks moving up, uh, consumer staple stocks moving up, uh, underperforming names moving up. One of the only groups that hasn't moved up dramatically, energy stocks, primarily because oil is being held down right now because of great supply in the markets. Uh, one of the last pieces of suspense, Sarah, we're going to close at a historic high for the S&P yeah. 500. We're just 12, 13, 14 points away from that. Uh, it is a fairly rare event. I talked to Standard & Poor's yesterday about this, for the markets to close on a historic high on the last trading day of the year. It doesn't happen very often here. Uh, eight times, actually. And, and there's the numbers here. Thank you, S&P, for providing this to us. 2020, 2013, 1999, 91, 63, 58, 54, and 1928. That's when they started keeping the records for the S&P. That was a, there was a 90 stock index. So back it's then. happened. It's happened uh, eight times. And uh, do the math here. Well, we're, we're talking about 95 years. So that doesn't happen very often. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, we have the Santa Claus rally. Yeah. Uh, the last five trading days of the old year, the first two of the new
New Year. Uh, that is on track as well here. Uh, so the last, we've got four days. Uh, the S&P is up 0.9% uh, or so uh, in the last four days. We've got three days to go. And that's about on average right now. The average gain on the Santa Claus rally uh, is about 1.3%. So the seasonal factors are, are coming in here really strong here. Uh, and uh, just a quick review of the global markets, which you watch so carefully, mm -hmm. uh, Sarah. It's been a generally good year ex-China. China is sort of the outlier. Uh, we saw uh, Japan having a terrific year, up 28%. The, the Nikkei is best yearly gain in a decade. It's the big winner over in Asia. We also saw nice gains in Europe globally, up about 13%. Uh, that's the SOX 600. Uh, India is up 17%. Mexico's up 8%. Look at these numbers. And there's the outlier, China, down about 4%. We'll be talking with Brendan Ahern, uh, who runs a big China ETF a little bit uh, later uh, in the hour, and we'll figure out where China's going to be going. But other than that, uh, in, Brazil was up nicely as well this year. So this has been a global stock rally, although the United States uh, has tended and Japan tended to lead. Although last few last few days here, China's seen some dip buying, so potentially yeah. a sign of things to come um, after, as you say, a pretty rough market. I guess the question, Bob, is let's separate the fundamentals where there's a total rethink of what's going to happen at the Fed. Now six rate cuts are priced in. The Fed itself has three rate cuts priced in. So they have pivoted. The market has pivoted faster yeah. and in a bigger way. And, and just the seasonal factors you mentioned. So there are things that happen here in the final trading days of the year that make it typically positive for the markets. The fact that people sell the losers or they wait right, to, to sell the losers for tax reasons, the low volatility. I think the question is, what does all this mean for 2024? So the, first of all, we had a better than 20% year. Next week, I'll talk a little bit about what typically happens after an up 20% year. But you will typically see January flutter a bit. It's a bit of a crapshoot what happens in January overall after a big up month. I think the important thing here is what could go wrong. We talked about this yesterday. Number one is we don't get the kind of rate cuts that the market is expecting. And remember, that is now priced in. Roughly six rate cuts is now priced into the market. Yeah. If we get into March and all of a sudden the Fed says, you know, we're not doing anything right now, we're holding off, the market's going to flutter on that because it's anticipating that. Number two, we could have signs of a much slower than expected economy out there. Maybe not a recession, but slowing a lot more. That'll get the financial journalists, all of us, uh, excited, talking about a potential real recession. And finally, I talked yesterday about the earnings and revenue expectations. They're very high. Earnings up 11 percent. Revenues 5, 6, 7 percent. And I see some early signs that revenues are going to be a little bit of a problem in the next year. So there's three potential issues. The market's position very bullish, anticipation of rate cuts, anticipation of the soft landing, mm -hmm. anticipation of strong earnings gains. Those are your three pain trades. Any one of those going wrong, the market's going to flow. I think we should just zoom in on the last two months for rates, for, for the 10-year Treasury, let's say. Because what we have seen in terms of the rally and the reversal, yeah. as you say, has underpinned this entire equity rally. So we saw the yield drop 46 basis points in the month of November. That's a huge drop. And then another 53 basis points in the month of uh, December. So put it together and you have a more than percentage point fall. It's the biggest two-month fall we've seen since 2008 when the Fed was cutting rates, remember, during the financial crisis. I think a lot to, depends on whether we can fall further or whether we see some type of rebound. And to your point, the economic data will be the tell. The inflation data will be the tell. Markets convinced on the disinflation story, that it will keep going lower, back all the way to the target of the Federal Reserve, which is 2% inflation by 
maybe the end of next year, and that's what's going to buy the Fed ability to start cutting rates. I do think in the background, though, Bob, you, you have seen tightening this year. Yeah. We've, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, for instance, it's still doing QT. It's still shrinking its balance sheet. That is set to proceed basically on autopilot. And with inflation falling, if the Fed doesn't start cutting rates, the real rate is it's rising. It's going to be higher. Yeah. And all of that can hurt the economy. How low can the balance sheet go? We were nine trillion. What are we? Seven trillion right now? Yeah, we've lost a few trillion on the balance sheet. I think they want to they want to see it come lower, as low as they can, before they before they have to stop. Just a final point before we get to John. Just look what those lower interest rates have done to small caps. Those are the companies that would benefit most. They get hurt the most when rates go up because they can't borrow very well when the rates get higher. Small cap has outperformed since the end of October. Value, small cap value, which we've waited for for years yep. to outperform, has outperformed virtually everything since then. And there's the response. Again, this is the cause and effect. The cause being the, 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 federal, the belief that the Federal Reserve will be cutting rates next year, the effect, lower interest rates, the second order effect, small caps rally. Well, and also with a soft landing, without seeing of recession, course. without seeing mass job yes. losses, without seeing a destruction of demand in a, in a see, major way. You see high yield stocks moving. Those are companies that are very much at risk to an economic slowdown. All right. Well, let's stick with the markets because our next guest believes the current rally will broaden further in 2024. And he has a 5,200 year end target for the S&P 500. John Stolfus, Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist, joins us now. What did you have this time last year for the S&P? Out of curiosity, John. Uh, this time last year, it was 4,400. People thought we were overly optimistic, uh, and uh, we were fortunate. Uh, it was a good target. Uh, worked out, I think it was in June, when the uh, market closed above that level. Well, uh, yeah, it turns our, out you weren't optimistic enough, I guess, is the bottom line. But what? what the, how, our, do we, why, how do we replicate this performance? Bob and I were just talking about just how much good news is already baked in at this point. You know, Sarah, I've got to say that uh, indeed uh, we think if we, we provide just uh, analytics of, of, of this rally that we've seen, we would have expected that the rally that, that, that has occurred over the last eight weeks or so uh, would have been about half of what it has been. Uh, but what really affected it, as you both mentioned, uh, was the drop in the 10-year yield. Uh, which brought back uh, the, uh, which created uh, a lot of uh, capitulation by bears, uh, and that process brought a lot of money into the market. We can't help but think that should interest rates rise somewhat, uh, you're going to get a questioning uh, and maybe some take back sometime in the in that first quarter of next of this coming year, just a few days away, uh, but sometime in that in the first quarter. But that said, we think the fundamentals are getting better. The, the Federal Reserve continues to show the Ben Bernanke legacy of high transparency, communicative uh, stance, and great sensitivity to the effects of practicing its mandate on the economy. So to maintain the uh, resilience in the economy, uh, provide for a market that uh, provide for interest rates that don't kill employment. Uh, we could very well uh, skirt a recession or maybe even uh, do a soft landing, and that should be good for stocks. And we think underlying all this uh, robust nature of the rally that we've seen is the resilience that has been identified by uh, investors in terms of corporates, uh, labor, uh, and the consumer uh, throughout this Fed funds hype cycle, uh, particularly uh, recognized this year. 
Uh, John, it's Bob. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, good to see you. Uh, you're, the, you're the top dog. Uh, you and Tom Lee have the highest estimates on the street. Both of you are at 5,200 for the year-end 2024. Uh, and I notice you have an earnings projections of $240. So I do 5,200 into 24, 240. I get a multiple of 21.7. Is that right? That That's a very, very high multiple. Is that right? And what would justify such a high multiple? The thing is, you know, we're, we're close to that now or have been for a good part of this year. Uh, and we have seen a multiple above 23, which was the peak uh, a multiple that we've seen, the average five-year uh, multiple for the S&P 500. So we're still down significantly from that. One thing you mentioned a little earlier uh, it, in the programming today at CNBC was that more people today are invested in the stock market than ever before. Now, we divide that into two populations just at the broadest level traders, day traders, players, and then the intermediate to long-term investors. And intermediate to long-term investors uh, have really come into this market. Some of it is just because two generations, both boomers as well as millennials and everything in between and after that are beginning to recognize that Social Security is not going to be able to provide the security that is provided for further generations. And so people in retirement and planning for retirement are investing more in equities, which over the course of the last uh, century have shown to be a very good way to invest for intermediate to longer term goals. Biggest risk for the baby boomer generation is that we, and I'm a boomer, uh, live longer than we expected. And if we want to maintain our standard of living, past performance not being any guarantee of future results, it would appear to us that equities are likely a good place to be. That's great support for equities. I feel like the elephant in the room is the election next year, John. I mean, already we can tell that it's not going to be smooth sailing. Maine just yesterday joining Colorado and banning Trump from the 2024 primary ballot. How do investors look at this, this volatility in terms of a political year? Usually election years are good for stocks. Uh, you know, but Sarah, one thing is, is, is that politically, uh, there's always uh, the, the capability of things like fiscal policy, uh, depending upon the administration's outlook or conditions and what an administration would do, because we've seen fiscal policy from two prior, from the current and the prior administration having happened uh, that was significant and likely contributed to the inflation that caused the Fed to get rather aggressive at one point uh, in terms of dealing with inflation. Uh, we would have to say here that uh, when, when, we, when we look at the landscape, politics ultimately, once that election happens, the market asks itself, what do Republicans want to buy or what do Democrats want to buy? What's the level? And the market goes for it. The, I wouldn't say the market is cynical, but it, it is practical. It, it's driven by revenues, projection of revenues mm. and earnings. And thus, uh, it will look to see whoever the victor is, that's where likely the spoils within the market uh, will be found. So tune out the noise like this drama that we're already getting. You've got to tune out, focus on the signal at which both on a cyclical and on a secular basis look remarkably good with technology likely to drive all sectors in terms of businesses that adapt modern technology and they've, they've already done that and but the technology that is in development right now and forthcoming yeah. uh, those are the companies that will be the winners and it'll be across 11 sectors you'll have to pick them 
and you'll have to be particularly uh, selective if you're a, an index uh, investor. We like alpha beta the best, where you go for alpha and you go for some beta, uh, just so you, you hedge your beta with alpha, hedge your alpha with beta, so to speak. All right, John, thank you for joining us with your outlook. John Stolfis from Oppenheimer. When we return, the best performing tech stock of 2023 has something in common with a number of its peers. We are not talking about NVIDIA. Stick around for the name. And taking a look at futures on this final trading day of 2023. They're pointed up again. This has been the trend all week long. Will the S&P set a record closing high? We're watching for that 47.96 level. Dow's already at a record. NASDAQ has had quite a string of gains as well. We'll be right back. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. This year's best performing tech stock is also among the most highly shorted and unprofitable names staging a comeback in 2023. Kate Rooney joins us with the details. Kate. Affirm, that is the big winner. It's the best performing tech name, at least among those with a market cap above $5 billion. It's up 430% for the year. And guys, this has been an epic turnaround story for that lender. Affirm had lost about 90% of its value back in 2022. Part of the story is tech's comeback, the NASDAQ having its biggest gain in decades, as you guys have been talking about. Unprofitable tech names had been some of the most shunned stocks as the Fed started hiking rates. Now the Fed cuts are on the horizon. Investors are turning back to some of the riskier, money-losing growth stories. Like a firm, it's also a way for investors to play that buy-now-pay-later surge. Adobe uh, estimates that these types of installment payments were up about 15% for the year and then 40% or so, more than 40%, just on Black Friday weekend. Then there's the short interest factor. A firm is one of the most highly shorted names out there, about 18% of the float sold short, adding to some of the volatility short covering this year has sparked some of the firm's biggest rallies. It has also become a favorite among retail investors. So almost a quarter of its trading volume, about 17% in December, came from individual investors. That's according to VandaTrack. All of this is giving a firm's top investors some reasons to celebrate heading into the new year. One of those is actually Shopify, which owns 4% of a firm that stake now worth over half a billion dollars, according to Facts. And then you've got Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. It's the firm's second largest individual shareholder there. And then, of course, the company's founder and CEO, Max Levchin, ringing in the new year with a company stake worth $1.4 billion. That's up from about $250 million 
just a year ago. While the lending picture is looking a bit better and delinquencies have stayed in check for a firm, the stock has seen a series of downgrades, including Morgan Stanley recently saying that the valuation is now unsustainable for a firm. It is not the only money-losing, highly shorted name on this list. Really happy to banner you. You've got Coinbase. That's the second best performer thanks to the Bitcoin rebound. That name's up 426%. So neck and neck there for those two guys. Back to you. You know, I was just going to say, and Bob and Kate, that... You know, you, you use the word unprofitable, yeah. but but what changed is a lot of these these unprofitable tech companies have found a little bit of religion on profitability, right? They went through 2021 and then 2022 on the higher rate story, got punished brutally, and their finances have improved a lot, haven't they, Kate? There's been a lot of bell tightening, so you've seen things like layoffs in terms of bringing the cost down when it comes to cost uh, stock-based compensation. That's been echoing through Silicon Valley. Tech companies, I mentioned Shopify, that's another name that's been able to rein in cost. Coinbase, too. You've heard it on all of these earnings calls, at least with some of these names, that they've talked about the discipline, cost discipline, and really tried to to echo that for investors and say, going forward, we're going to make sure we're cutting costs. And you've seen it. You know, Margins have gotten better. They've been able to keep that in line. It's a story that investors like. And then also you've got the tailwind of lower interest rates. But that's absolutely part of it here, that they've found some religion and said, all right, enough with the growth at all costs. We're going to try and tighten our belts here. And that seems to be working. And yet, Kate, I can't help but think Morgan Stanley's on to something with a downgrade here. I mean, the company loses money. It's going to lose $2.60 this year. I think it's slated or analysts are expecting it to lose $2 in the next year. And it's gone from $22 to $51. I mean, that's that's kind of remarkable here. I know there's anticipation here, but there's, you know, that old joke discounting the hereafter at this point. Yeah, exactly. Those seem to be completely out of sync. Some of the rally in the stock. You've seen a little bit of the FOMO catch up trade with retail investors. I mentioned it's about a quarter of the investor interest in a firm. A lot of investors out there and individual investors who had been in money market funds, bond ETFs, who are now saying, wait a minute, all right, I think it's time at the end of the year to get back into some of the risk chasing that you're seeing with a firm. Short interest absolutely plays into that. But the valuation, based on what the majority of Wall Street investors are saying, they've said, yes, the picture has gotten marginally better. A firm has not seen the type of delinquencies that people talked about with the worst case scenario of you know, a, a recession here. And uh, investors not being able to pay some of those loans back. They haven't seen that. It's better than feared, but still not quite in line with what analysts had expected. The other thing to mention, just on the economic side of things, there's a lot of talk about what that actually means for the individual uh, borrower here and things like they call it phantom debt, debt stacking. So I think it's too soon to tell what it actually means for the borrower if buy now, pay later is a good thing in the long run. True. Kate, thank you. Something to watch. Kate Rooney. When we come back, Fundstrat's Tom Lee accurately called the year's rally, and he's making another bullish call for 2024 with some caveats. Tom Lee will join us in the next hour when Squawk on the Street comes right back. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up about 14% year to date here. The top performers on the Dow, they're all technology related. Salesforce, Intel, Microsoft and Apple, some pretty giant gains for the Dow. The biggest loser, by the way, is Walgreens, along with Chevron 
and J&J. In the last final day, days here of 2023, the Dow has set seven record closes. Will today be number eight? Opening bell just minutes away. Oil prices down more than 9% in 2023, actually marking the first negative year in three for oil. The drop coming as OPEC cuts, along with its ally supply, but also amid worries about supply disruptions and geopolitical tensions, demand concerns and increase in U.S. crude production, all helping to lower prices here. I think the question for 2024, Bob, is is the geopolitical risk factor priced in as all roads increasingly lead to Iran. The surprise here is what happened at all. If I would have told you uh, six months ago, the, the Russian-Ukraine war will continue to grind on with no immediate end in sight. And then this, this shocking war between Hamas and Israel, you would have thought oil would be much, much higher. It did. It did oil was over 90 in September. In October, a very brief rise, and then it moved down because of massive production. U.S. is now the biggest producer in the world, I believe, 13 million barrels a day. There uh, is a, a testimony to the United States' uh, tremendous uh, reserves of oil and natural gas right there. So this is a little bit of a counterintuitive idea here that oil would be down 10%. Yeah, year. energy stocks get hit as well. Just want to pause here for the opening bells, the CNBC real-time exchange. Here at the big board, it's the Professional Women's Hockey League. At the NASDAQ, the Times Square Alliance getting ready for the big ball drop, the New Year's Eve celebration, as they always do in Times Square. We hear with extra security, of course, this year. Bob, a number of places to start. Let's start with one of the stocks of the year, which has to be NVIDIA. It is the best performing stock in the S&P 500, up a whopping 242% year to date. I'm looking at NVIDIA at 499.85 because Matt Maley of Miller Tabak, the technical strategist, says 500 is a very key level for NVIDIA. Um, and he's watching that carefully. The bulk of NVIDIA's games, gains came in the first few months, yeah. actually, of the year. It's underperformed in the last few months. Still had a good What I keep good remarking run. on these companies is you'd, you'd think a 240% gain would result in a stupid multiple. Nobody can do that. And yet the earnings expectations are so great that the multiples are not expanding that dramatically. In fact, most of the other major tech names, I talked about this yesterday, Microsoft, uh, NVIDIA, Apple, even Meta, their multiples are within the normal five-year historic range for them. So this is part of the great story here that the expectations are so high for the impact of artificial intelligence that we're not dealing with stupid. This is not anywhere near 1999. These companies' valuations are very reasonable right now. What I want to see is an expansion of the AI ecosphere next year. I want to sure. see a lot of small IPOs like Databricks. There's one that people are talking about in, in the data center area that are going to benefit from the AI revolution come public next year. I'm hopeful that we're finally going to end this two-year terrible IPO drought. Mm -hmm. I hope we're going to see a lot of small billion to $10 billion uh, uh, small cap tech companies in the data space, uh, in the AI space coming next year. The overall market conditions are terrific, new highs, interest rates moving down, volatility low. Those are the three best uh, global market conditions you can ask for for, for the IPO market. So let's yeah, hope that AI open. powers the IPO market but next year. But so do year. lower interest rates and stabilization of rates, exactly. which we're getting. So NVIDIA is at that key level, 500, if we get above it. Mailey says that could be very bullish. Apple's also at a very key level. I just want to point out what Apple's done. And it's had kind of a minor sell-off, actually, or, or underperformance in the last few trading days and weeks of 2023. It's still up 50% year-to-date. 200 is the key level to watch on Apple. It's been a point of resistance before. If we get above it, 
could also be another bullish tell for arguably most one of the most important stocks in the market. And again, Apple 25, 26 times forward earnings, that's within the normal historic range that you see. You typically see 24, 25, 26, 27. Uh, you're right. I mean, we topped out essentially back in August and we topped out again uh, a month ago uh, or early December. But I don't know what else you're going to expect from this name. It's the one that everybody owns at this point. Uh, and th despite the concerns about iPhone deliveries, uh, I think you're going to see tremendous things. I'll tell you what I'm waiting for. I'm very excited about. For years, I have waited for a Bob 2.0, a personal digital assistant that is essentially attached to me and can answer everything I really want to know. We're getting there. It's getting much better. But I anticipate Apple will be one of the first ones out with a true personal digital assistant. And here's the key. The data will stay resident on your phone. It's not an app where you're sharing your data with somebody else who's going to sell it to you who knows everything about you. Apple will create a personal digital assistant where the data is resident exclusively on the iPhone. Of course, you'll be you're backing it up in, in iCloud, obviously, but it's going to be there. I think it's going to be tremendous. I've been waiting for this for 10 years. I mean, I can barely handle Bob 1.0, Bob 2.0. No, it's going to be great. <laughs> Sarah 2.0. I can barely handle Sarah 1.0. All right. Well, information technology, no surprise, is the best sector in the S&P 500, yeah. and that is thanks in part to NVIDIA, but also all the other semiconductors. It's been a great year for Intel which would have been a good loser to buy last year because it's the second best Dow performer and has had After a real years of underperformance. After years of underperformance. Years and years and years. And this goes to the, the point about the AI ecosphere expanding. I see people complain about the Magnificent Seven. I see most of the semiconductors universe expanding. And we'll talk about software uh, with a guest coming up. And I also see most of the data uh, and, and uh, cloud business expanding dramatically. Uh, we talked about a whole bunch of other companies uh, yesterday uh, that are out there in the, in the data business that are expanding dramatically. Uh, and I think, again, you're going to see much smaller companies come in. 2024 is going to be the year the AI ecosystem is going to expand dramatically. And that's, that's what makes me very hopeful. Um, I'm wondering, we're going to have Tom Leon, yeah. who was uh, directionally correct this year. Kudos bullish. to him. Uh, he's, bullish, he's bullish again, uh, 5,200. I want to just point out about this game that we all play about forecasting. It's a terrible game, and most of these people aren't very good at it. You, you saw, we just had John Stoltzfus on. He had, he had 4,400 here for the end of the year. That was off by a good 10%. No, but 10%. he was closer to right. He was closer to right than most bearish. people were. Uh, and even the Federal Reserve, and I have pointed this out many times, has a terrible forecasting record. They're, I just want to point out, their GDP forecast this time of last year was 0.5% for 2023. Uh, and the actual numbers, we had 2.2% for the first quarter, 2.1, 4.9, They were off by Everybody orders of magnitude. They're not, they were off on the unemployment rate, too. They had 4.6%, we're at 3.7. They've just been, look, here's the forecast for the Federal Reserve for this year's GDP. It was 0.5%. Uh, that was their prediction this time. And this yep. is actually what happened. Uh, and they were wrong also on the on the unemployment rate. But even they didn't think they could pull, pull it off. The but my, my, my point is people tend to be dismissive about this. They say, oh, they're all a bunch of fools. Nobody knows. These are the smartest people. They have the best economists anywhere. And even they find out they were terribly wrong on their inflation forecast a couple years ago by magnitudes of order. And my point is, it's not that these people are dumb or we should disregard them. Here's their projections for 2024. This is what the Fed thinks is going to happen. We'll see. Write these down, folks, and see how close they get. I, I wager they will not be 
uh, that close. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to them. It means that forecasting is a very difficult game, particularly when you go out more than a few months. It's, un it's difficult because there are biases that infect the way people think, and it's difficult because there are so many variables that the future is ultimately unknowable. And often what happens is unknown events come in that really influence these. these. So they always say, well, if we didn't, if we didn't have COVID, our projections would be more accurate. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true, but we had COVID, so this is the problem with these projections. The future is ultimately well, unknown. As far as the Fed, Bob, I think the only tradable piece of information there is where they expect the Fed funds rate to go. And that might be wrong, too, but it's a signal. And that's the signal that they gave that got the market so bulled up that we expect to be cutting rates three times. Yeah. Next year, from the than from the current level than we are now. I'm I'm, I'm very excited about next year because I, I think mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve is going to be cutting interest rates here. I wonder if we could talk about some stocks that are at new sure. highs. Um, did you see the credit card companies? MasterCard's new high. Amex is at a new high. Capital One is is at a new high. A credit card balances uh, record highs right now. So. It, the cons this is another sign to me that the consumer is still yeah. doing well. Now, if you want to flip this around, you say, oh, they're charging up a lot of money on their credit cards. That's a problem. But I see that. You see these new highs? There's the, the, uh, the credit cards. But put up the industrials. Look, well, look at these industrials. Just on the credit cards, they're, bar they're, they're charging up a lot and taking a lot of credit card debt at a time where delinquencies are rising. So it is something we want to watch. Yeah. It, that sort of combination could not spell good things for the consumer, although I will say that delinquency levels are just kind of around post pre-pandemic highs at this point. You, I know you flipped this around, but my point is if consumers were truly fearful, truly, truly fearful, they would be pulling back on their sure. spending more. So there's an indication. Uh, put the industrials back up because we've been talking about this all year. There's a group of industrials that consistently hit new highs. Caterpillar, Ingersoll Rand, Eaton, Parker Hannifin, Union Pacific, General Electric. There's even some AI plays around this. Ingersoll Rand is a big industrial compressor manufacturer. And they're, they're big on global reshoring trends. They're big on uh, increased investing in automation, for example. Uh, Eaton does power management. They, they do power management, big industrial facilities. They manage the power systems. So automation is really important. Uh, more smart devices is going to require very sophisticated power management systems. That's going to, and AI will enhance the sophistication of the power management systems. So my point here is, obviously, these They've are industrial companies. There, there's a slight AI play in some of these names as well. And I mean, Ingersoll ran at Parker Hannifin almost every day this quarter. They've been hitting new highs and GE, our old parent uh, company, is, is finally getting more focused uh, as well. So even with some, the questions about strength of the industrial economy, it's just having been an investor in General Electric for 30 years, it was it was the owner of, of NBC uh, back a while ago, um, and having lived through Jack Welch's years and everybody else's years, it's nice to see them get more focused. It's hard to describe what a conglomerate was General Electric in, in 30 years ago in 1993. Mm -hmm. It owned everything. Uh, and it got more and more focused through many, many difficult years. Uh, and I'm just pleased to see it sort of figure out what it wants to be. It doesn't necessarily have to be in everything. It doesn't have to be in financial services or light bulbs or even healthcare. Maybe it should be just an industrial company overall. A so, double in 2023. Yeah. Just want to hit Boeing as well because there's some news on that stock. Boeing urging airlines now to inspect the 737 MAX planes to look for what they're calling a possible loose bolt in the rudder control system that I guess came from an international carrier that was flagged. Also, they found one in production. It's about a two-hour inspection process, we're told. 
at Boeing. Boeing's been a, a winner as well, but just watch this story. CNBC.com reached out to some of the, the customers, Alaska Airlines, United, American. They all said that they're going to complete the inspections. It shouldn't, it, it shouldn't interfere with operations. But just something to watch, Bob, as we're always on sort of quality control watch, especially heightened alert when it comes to Boeing it, because of some of the missteps in recent years. Th despite what this, this incident here, you again seeing the effect of lower interest rates. Boeing, along with the rest of the industrials, took off at the end of October. It was a, I did a story on the floor. It was $190, I think, November 1st. And where, where are we today? $260. Look, $190 to $260 uh, in, two, in essentially two months. Uh, we're at a new, almost uh, 50, almost a two-year high here. I think going back to 2021. So obviously, there's been concerns about their most, their, their biggest jet, their most popular jet, but it hasn't stopped uh, the rally in the stock itself. I think we should hit the home builders because, boy, what a surprisingly yeah. strong year it has been. Talk every about day. surprises. New highs every for the day. home builders, even when mortgage rates were going up to eight percent to historic highs. We continue to see names like Pulte Group and DR Horton rally. Why? Because of the inventory problem that we have. I keep going back to Diana Olick saying that we have 30% less inventory than we did uh, before COVID. So that has kept prices elevated. It's kept demand relatively strong in the face of these high mortgage rates. And now they're getting a blessing at the end of the year, which is mortgage rates have come down and they have come down pretty sharply. We saw yesterday the level on the 30-year fix, 6.61%, down from 6.67 the week before and down from almost 8% in late October. What you want to look at is the percentage of new homes sold to existing homes. When I was the real estate correspondent, this was 30 years ago, I was the real estate correspondent from 1990 to 96. Don't, no jokes, please. Uh, and at that time, typically new homes were... 10, 15% of the total home universe. Most of the universe was existing homes. Mm -hmm. And now we have seen suddenly new homes become a larger percentage. I don't know what the number is, but it, it's, it's in the 20% range, I believe, 20 to 30%. And it's amazing to see that because that takes a lot. New homes are typically you know, more expensive. They, they cost more for people to buy, but it's happening because the inventory is so difficult right now, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, this is going to change, by the way. Look, even at 6.6%, people may complain that they want to hold on to the 3% mortgage, but the world doesn't operate in a static position. People get new jobs. People move around. People are forced to do things. So I think once you get more accustomed to a mortgage rate in the mid-sixes, you're going to see the existing homes. Death, divorce, diapers. Up. What does the Compass CEO say? It's all the life cycles. At That's the right. same time... Whether it spurs a burst of buying activity, we don't know because it's still the mortgage rates, while they've come down, are double the, where they were in 2022. It's still been a pretty sharp run up, and I think that's a question. It's also a question of what, what commercial real estate does. I know you say it's been well telegraphed and we've been waiting for this ticking time bomb, but we will start to get some of the refinancings next year, and they will be at much higher rates yeah. than where some of these buildings locked it in. And the market's been particularly worried about office, although in the last few weeks, the rebound in REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust, look at that sector, especially some of the office names, has been strong. Well, there's your interest rate rebound. Again, again, cause and effect. You see that in the market. One thing you can confidently predict, 
not a lot of new office buildings are going to be built for a long, long time. I would, I would be surprised to see the pipeline is essentially going to stop at this point. So that's mm -hmm. a pretty confident prediction. And the only issue is, can we get more people back into the office? I play against this trend of a lot of people coming back. I, I, I think there may... I, I like to play against prevailing tropes, and the prevailing trope is we're going to have a slowdown and they're going to force more people back into the office because you're going to see headlines that say people who come into the office more often are more likely to get promoted. There's going to be surveys out. The financial press will do this. That's us. And we'll show that. I tend to think that the three-day in the office, two days out, the mixed thing is a very strong trend and it's going to take a lot to sort of break that. I think a lot of people are really going to resist that and I will bet you a year from now it's not going to be that that much different. I do think it is a question of what happens when the labor market loosens because it's been tight lately to you, your point. You're going to, you'll, you'll see that headline. People <laughs> who come in more get, get promoted more. Time now for our final key economic report of the year. We're getting Chicago PMI crossing the tape. Let's get to Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick. Yes, Sarah. We're expecting a number spot on at 50, a disappointment, 46.9, 46.9. That would be the weakest level going back to just October when it was 44.0. But in between, and this is the issue, last month's 55.8 was a one-and-a-half-year high. So big reversal there. And, of course, we want to pay very close attention to how other PMIs and how some of the data points start to show up next year in January. This is a DS data point. Here's something unusual. We're at 386 and a 10. Why is that unusual? Because we settled at 388 last year. And about five minutes ago, that's exactly where the market was. Unchanged on the year. And just to put a face on it, right now a two-year note is at 428. Last year, it closed at a price of 443. 30-year uh, bond is the only maturity that is slightly, and I only, only mean slightly higher on the year. It settled at 397. It's currently at 4%. The settlements I'm referencing for 2022 were the last trading day, which was December 30th of last year. Squawk on the Street will return. After a short break. Here are the biggest S&P 500 gainers of the week. As we get ready to wrap up the week, the quarter, and the year, you've got a mix of semiconductors like AMD, losers on the year like Moderna making a little bit of a comeback, and winners like Intel. By the way, S&P up almost seven-tenths of a percent for the week, adding to year-to-date gains of 25%. We'll be right back. Venture capital firms are hoping for an IPO market rebound in the new year after what has been a rough 2023 for startups. Julia Borston joins us with more. Julia. Sarah, that's right. In 2024, VCs and startups are hoping for a rebound in investments and in IPO, IPOs after this year's tight IPO market and major decline in VC investments. In addition to the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank, this past year, startups were hit by higher borrowing costs and thousands of them went out of business. Now, Crunchbase forecasts that VC investments will slow in this fourth quarter, ending what they project will be the lowest year for venture funding since 2018, a 39% decline through December 21st to $462 billion invested worldwide this year. There were cutbacks across all stages of venture funding. Now, no surprise, AI did buck the trend with a 9% increase in investment, bolstered by big checks written to OpenAI, Anthropic, and Inflection AI. 
Categories such as insure tech, semiconductors, and battery tech companies also marked gains, while Web3, fintech, and e-commerce saw big drops in investment in those companies. Now, next year, VC fundraising is expected to increase to a level comparable with 2020, according to PitchBook. And part of that is because investors have plenty of dry powder. More than 4,000 funds were raised since the beginning of 2020, and lower valuations may look to investors like a good opportunity. This according to PitchBook, which also projects that the number of VC firms will likely wane over the next few years. Now, both PitchBook and Crunchbase forecast a return for some IPOs next year, but as investors are more focused on profitability rather than growth, startups that can afford to delay an IPO until 2025 may do so. But there are close to 1,500 companies with valuations of $1 billion or more, there's, so there's certainly a big backlog of big mature startups that are ready to go public. So right now, we here at CNBC are looking for the fast-growing private companies that are driving change for our next annual Disruptor 50 list. We are accepting nominations now. You can go to cnbc.com slash disruptors uh, or scan the QR code on your screen to learn more and apply for your company. Sarah? Julia, the question is, can the IPO market open up next year? I mean, we, we have 20 billion raised this year. That's a terrible number. It's normally 50 billion. It was 7 billion in 2022. Uh, you were mentioning 1,500 unicorns out there. What's going to happen to all of them? I mean, some can IPO, but a lot of them are going to have to take haircuts. Some of them may not even get any more funding. They're going to merge or go out of business. I know. Can you handicap this? I know it's a big number, 1,500. That, that's what really caught my attention there. Yeah. I mean, look, not all 1,500 of those companies are in the pipeline ready to go public. By one estimate, there are about 75 companies that are ready to go public that are really just standing by, ready to go public. So I think that is a number that's sort of the, the more near-term number for IPOs. But, Bob, you'll probably have better insight into this than I will. What I'm hearing is that there will be some uptick in IPOs this year, but that the real flood of IPOs will come in 2025. I think you're right that the fact that some companies that maybe not be quite ready to go public, they'll likely sell. So we might see some M&A activity of the big established companies, maybe buying some disruptors that have some valuable technology um, so they can sort of accelerate their own technological growth. But Bob, you, you probably have a sense of when that IPO market is going to fully open up. In theory, it's the perfect moment. Next week. Yeah, uh, it's new highs. Interest rates declining, low volatility. On a, on a macro level, that's the perfect market overall. But that, that funding is really going to be a problem, guys. They missed their window. They should have worked with us this week. Thank, Thank you very much, Julia. When we come back, Fundstrat's Tom Lee, who correctly predicted this year's stock market rally. Hear what he has to say about 2024 when Squawk on the Street comes back. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.